Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from another incredible producer, and this episode is epic. Chock full of fantastic stories. This week is the incredible Terry Manning. Now, Terry's career goes back 50 years. He worked on Led Zeppelin 3, you guys. He talks about that in here. In fact, he was almost a member of Led Zeppelin. That's actually a joke. He's very adamant in here and clarifying that that's not exactly what it is, but it's not that far off either. Now, for large chunks of his career, he worked at Stax Records in Memphis and at Compass Point in the Bahamas. Those are two of the most legendary studios ever. So while he's at Stax, for instance, he's working very closely with Big Star, producing those first two albums. He tells stories about Alex Chilton and Chris Bell in here. He works with Al Green. He works with Isaac Hayes and, and Otis Redding. He's got stories about all of them. Later on, he goes and manages Compass Point in the Bahamas for 16 years. And that, what a job that must have been. So he touches on things like working with David Bowie at Compass Point. He tells a story about recording Bjork in here that is pretty much exactly what you would think a story someone would tell about recording Bjork would sound like. He also worked closely with Lenny Kravitz. He talks about that in here. Now, some of his long-standing relationships include George Thorogood. He produced a bunch of George's albums and ZZ Top. That's why you're listening to Give Me Some Lovin'. Now, he was with them back in the 70s when they were still more of a blues and boogie-woogie band, but he was there for Eliminator, and that's what changed everything. If you've seen that documentary on Netflix, you know this story. That documentary is so good. What is it? Uh, just a band from Texas or something like that? So good. So anyway... Stories about all this stuff. There's also one-offs with people like the fabulous Thunderbirds. And in fact, he was good friends with Bobby Fuller back in the day. Now, Bobby's story is tragic, but he has some, Terry has some different opinions about what might have happened there. And in fact, a couple of years ago, Terry, who was also a recording artist, by the way, we didn't even get that deep into his uh, career, which is sad. I wish we had. We it was there's so much to talk about. A couple years ago, he put out an album called West Texas Skyline, where he does his versions of a lot of Bobby Fuller songs. That story is amazing too. He's also a very accomplished photographer. I mean, this guy has done it all. So anyway, I, you guys are going to love this conversation. So many fun things in here. I love Terry, and I, I'm so glad to share this with you. He called me from his home in El Paso, Texas. All right. So before we get into you uh, personally and your history and stuff like that, which I want to know about too, I I want to kick it off with talking about ZZ Top because you've had a few long-standing business relation music relationships in your career, and that seems to be one of the biggest and one of the most profitable. I am just curious what the conversations were like when you were there as they were sort of transitioning from El Loco to Eliminator and becoming the band that they became. If they hadn't made that choice right at that time, I mean, they'd, you know, they'd still be Foghat or the Marshall Tucker Band. Nothing against those bands, but they this exploded them into the stratosphere. What were those conversations like as they were starting to embrace synthesizers and, ch and make videos and change their who they were? Well, it's really quite a story, and some of it I normally or previously wouldn't have told, but Ooh. since that documentary came out, right. people sort of owned up to some of the problems they had. Uh, I feel okay about saying some of it now, okay. but 
Billy Gibbons, who really is the leader of ZZ Top, he writes more uh, than the others. But well, everyone writes, but he's sort of the, the guy, sings the lead on most things, plays the lead guitar. And uh, he had been traveling in Europe on a, a long break they had taken and gone to dance clubs, discos, you might call them, or just checking the scene out in many places. And he noticed that when they would place a ZZ Top song uh, because he was there, you know, at the club. But he noticed that when their music played, not as many people got up and danced as when a disco song itself was played or, or certain other songs that he, he started thinking, I think it's our rhythms. Some things, they're, they're, it's, we're more blues-based, we're more uh, retro at the time. So he wanted, he came to me and said, can we do something about this tightening it up and getting things together? I've been to dance clubs and he told me the whole story. So, and I think part of it was that uh, as we now have seen uh, on the drums, Frank had had a few problems, bless his heart, as we say in Texas. Sure. He was, he's gotten over those, of course, and everything's great for him now. And, I, and we all are very appreciative of that. But at the time, he wasn't as together as he had been. As he started out, his drumming was phenomenal. I mean, just uh, some of those roles on the early things just killed people. Yeah. But uh, he, did, he wasn't a straight ahead. He's a shuffle drummer in a lot of ways. He wasn't a straight ahead dance beat drummer necessarily. So Billy said, what can we do? So I started going to clubs myself and watching people dance. And I took a stopwatch and I started timing and see what the beats were that people liked the most and that sort of thing. And uh, came back and reported to Billy. And he said, yeah, that's kind of the stuff I've been noticing too. Uh, he said, what are we going to do? So <laughs> I decided, unbeknownst to anyone else in the band or in, in the, the office management, anything, I decided we're going to get something that really tightens the drums up and i bought a drum machine uh, i won't say which one because i've always kept that a little secret hopefully but i will say this even back then i made my own samples for the snares and bass drums and things Bef before just the way you did podcasts before they were cool i was doing samples before they were cool <laughs> so, right so uh i came up with some sounds and put them on the cards and put them into my drum machine and just started, what we would do is the band would come in and record a song. Let's say it was Give Me All Your Lovin', for instance. Mm -hmm. They'd record that song, and then everybody go home for the day about, say, 10 to 11 at night, something like that. And then Billy would pretend to leave, and I would pretend to leave, mm -hmm. and then I had the keys to the studio. So uh, we, Billy and I would come back, and I would start, replacing the beats, tightening everything up. If I used anything the band had played, I would tighten it to the actual drum beat to, as people do now as a matter of course. But back then, no one did that in rock music. So uh, uh, the next day, and Billy would put his guitars back on in time, really, and that's the main part of, of the whole sound. So people would come back the next day and we'd start the tape that I had the Billy and I created overnight and people listen back the management people would go oh that's fantastic we really we're really ripping yesterday weren't we 
and Billy and I would look and wink, and Frank would look and get a little angrier and angrier, knowing he didn't play that. And Dusty was happy with whatever we did at the time. And after a few times of this, <laughs> Frank got mad and came in and just left. Said, "If you're doing this stuff to me, I'm leaving." And at which point I let everyone know what was going on. Yeah. And so we just continued that way and uh, ended up with uh, a really well-timed record. Then when I sequenced the record, I started at a certain beat that I knew was the dance beat that would really catch people. And then the next song would be one or two beats faster, but still very tight. The next song would be one or two beats faster again. So the album progressed, progressed. Then when you got to the slow song, you were able to pull down and come back wherever you wanted. And mm-hmm. so we had that all timed out. And damn if it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> now, the videos helped a lot, too. Were you, oh. I don't know how, I assume you guys' relationship was tight enough that they would tell you how they felt about making videos. Obviously, they played up all of their strengths, the way they looked, their their laid-back uh, personality. They didn't put themselves front and center. They got the car. They got the keys. They got the girls. Were they talking with you as it was starting to, you know, blossom and get bigger and bigger, saying, you wouldn't believe these videos are really taking off? What were these conversations like? Well, I heard reports back. Okay. But I will start all of this off by giving the major credit where it belongs is to the director, Tim Newman. Now, he is the cousin of Randy Newman, the artist. I Love L.A. was one of his hits and, and all. And quite a musical guy. But he had done a lot of commercials, uh, uh, really big-time commercials for people. I think Levi's maybe and a lot of big companies. So he was really, really highly astute as a video director and knew how to catch people's attention, as a commercial is supposed to do, a good commercial. And he was very musical. So he was the perfect guy to bring in on this. Mm. And he had the concepts. He wanted, he knew he wanted the band in it, but not the stars. Mm-hmm. They were going to be the, the heroes, the background yeah. uh, cartoon character guys That's that it. came in and saved the day when the girl was in trouble or the yeah. guy was in trouble or, or however it was. And I, I and took the, the car. of course, Billy had the car. Billy had built the car. Oh, really? Became, oh, yeah. He's quite a car aficionado, as is Jeff Beck, maybe even more so in Jeff's case. But Billy loves cars, and he had built the hot, had the hot rod built, not by himself, of course, but had a company taking his ideas and built the, the Eliminator hot rod with the double Zs on the side and uh, showed it to Randy Newman. And Randy said, oh, yeah, this is our vehicle that carries the heroes in. So Randy just put it all together and then did, I forget who came up with the key ring idea, but again, another brilliant stroke. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, the record I think was great and I'm easy for me to say I'm biased. Sure. Sure. Uh, it proved itself so, but I think the videos made a huge help in getting it to go worldwide and immediate. And the yeah. other thing that helped was that MTV was just becoming this thing to watch people well for instance i think even even in the uh, netflix which has been on netflix but the documentary that they did zz top the little old band from texas i think frank even talks about 
being called up by Dusty and saying, hey, you won't believe there's a great music show on. And then hours later, it's still on. <laughs> that was MTV. That. that was one of my favorite parts of that I, show. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we didn't, I mean, people didn't know about it like we yeah. knew about it shortly thereafter. Yeah. But to be, to come in with great videos, great music, an incredibly brilliant character I'm calling them as the three guys sure. one character right. with the beards and the whole goofy guitar spinning and just everything they yeah. did. Yeah. I mean it was unstoppable. There was there was it just really was. It was amazing. So that car was not built for the sake of the videos. That car but, was something Billy already had and thought, let's put the put this in the videos. That's my understanding. Now I could be a little off on that because I wasn't sure. there for the building of right, the car right. or involved in a lot of those things i'm just the music guy sure of course. but that's what i understood because okay. billy had been doing several car things and he liked to build his own amps with his own uh -huh. brand name on them and just loved to make things and he's a he's just a an all-around renaissance man yeah. kind of guy interesting <laughs> that's wild now my understanding is that you were busy doing something else and you weren't able to come back for afterburner but you did work on Recycler. That's now, correct. Obviously by then, you know, things were starting to fade and, but it, they are still huge. They've cemented their legacy with these albums. Um, when they, when you're working on Recycler, are they aware of the fact that tastes are changing and they may not get back to eliminator status? Were they cool with that or where were their heads? Uh, that's a hard question because I would say this is true of every artist, really. In fact, well, most artists, I don't know if we can say every, but you don't really quite realize what's going to happen in, in an historical context. Uh, all we knew is at the time, uh, we've got to make more music and we got to keep trying to keep this, this yeah. car rolling down the hill and everything. And of course, at the time we did uh, Recycler, we also did a song for... Uh, Back to the Future 3. Yeah. Bob Zemeckis, the director, came in for that. And so, Double I mean, back, there were a lot of things. Right? So Double Back was the... Was the Double Back, right. Yeah, it was a, yep. a separate song for, yeah. for the film.
and uh, they were, appeared in in Back to the Future Three. Yep, yep. Uh, as themselves. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that when that kind of thing is going on, and a director like Zemeckis comes in, mm-hmm. you're not thinking, well, this isn't going to work, or this isn't yeah. going to be as big as you're thinking. Wow, look what's going on now. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, I, I think you always know if you have a record as big as Eliminator. You don't expect that every record's going to be that big, right. but I don't think we had any negative thoughts. Okay, I just wonder if you go from selling 16 million copies to two million copies in the span of six years or whatever that was. Two million copies is still fantastic, but you've been trained to think that's not enough. Can you still be happy and satisfied with what's with the success you're having, or are you? getting depressed is 2 million copies (laughs) depressing you. You know what I mean? Well, it didn't depress me. I can't answer Uh, for the band or or Billy or the management, but you must remember before Eliminator, we had the albums were going gold or slightly slipping. We were slipping before that. Hmm. So that's the the mark, uh, I think, of a brilliant artist. If you can reinvent yourself where you don't lose where you came from you keep your in this case the blues bass the the fuzzy guitar bass you don't lose that and jump straight to disco and we we wouldn't try to do that we tried to be what zz top would do if they did this that's right so i think a, a great artist can reinvent themselves i mean you look at a for instance madonna yeah. uh how many times has she reinvented herself and kept going yep. doing whatever it takes you know to, yep. so uh, we just did what we thought it took, and but before Eliminator, we would be if we sold a million, would be thrilled. Then we had the 16 to maybe worldwide 20 million, whatever it was, huge, multi-platinum success. And then when we're down to the next the next album to two million, I could still go wow, double platinum. We'll take that. Yeah. But I can't answer if if the band okay. said, uh oh, it's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah, I wondered. Um, now, one of the things we cover on here very sensitively is the business side of things. And I am curious if you as an engineer on those albums, specifically Eliminator, get a point. Is your life changing to a lesser degree, but are you seeing a financial windfall from the success of this album or were you paid a fee and that was it? Yeah, I don't talk very much about uh, financial okay. matters. Okay. It's really not fair uh, in some ways. But I did get paid a fee and had other remuneration that, that helped me a lot. But I would okay. say the biggest, the biggest thing you get from something like that is association with success. Yes. And there's there nothing that helps you get other projects or to get anything good happen like having any success. So. Yep. That was that was was fine. Good point. Okay, um, I've got a bunch of other people I want to ask you about, but let's talk about you for a minute because you seem like in doing my research to talk to you, such a fascinating character because you you grow up in Oklahoma, move to El Paso. Apparently, there's a big music community in El Paso. At some point, you go to Memphis, start working at Stacks, which I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. You're also a runner, a football player a racquetball coach, a photographer, you started Lucas Engineering, a business, you do, you have your hands in like all these different things. You know, I, I don't 
see it as anything great or special. I just do things I like to do. Yeah. One thing about me, if it has to, if things have to be about me, is I don't smoke or drink or do drugs. I get up as early as I need to. I work out when I can. Mm-hmm. I do. I try to do everything to keep healthy. And I found that that just keeps your mind strong, keeps you going. You're not distracted by by things you shouldn't be. And uh, I just like to do stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you still a runner? Because I think I read that you still run marathons and stuff like that. I haven't run for uh, marathons for a while. Okay. I had a knee injury uh, about four years ago. Pretty okay. bad knee injury. Tore up and had to have a... A full meniscus and other parts rehabilitated surgery and they told me not to run I do jump on trampolines a lot and do ride a bike and things like that but I don't get to go out and do the distance running they just said you will kill this knee so it yeah. there went my NFL career damn <laughs> <laughs> what about photography because I'm I get the impression that that has probably taken over for music as your primary creative focus these days. Maybe I have that completely wrong. No, in a way that's correct. Uh, now, photography has always been at least equal to music oh. in my mind as what I like to do, want to do, and do do. Uh, I've done photography as long as music and, and even early on in the early years, I'm talking, I hate to say it, but the 1960s, even back in those years, I was doing it professionally. Uh-huh. I was a photojournalist for uh, New Musical Express, which was the, the top music newspaper in, in England, in yep. the UK, and big all over the world. And it's still, uh, they're online only now, but they printed up to last year, you know. Yeah. So it's been around forever. Uh, I did, would interview people and do photographs and do all sorts of things and write stories for them. I've had lots of album covers, photos that I took for people, and I'm talking way back. So as long as I've liked music, I've liked photography, at least equally, I would say. It's hard to, mm-hmm. it's whatever you wake up and your mind says, let's do this, I right. guess. Or if uh, someone's paying you to go do a job, that's what yeah, you do. Yeah. But that's what happens to the photography for a while, is the music recording and production started taking off, started paying the rent. And at that point, you go, oh, this is paying more. I'll do more of that. So for, for quite a few years, I did music, 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 and then photography for myself, mm-hmm. uh, things I liked and wanted to do, but not necessarily for a magazine or a newspaper or an album cover or something. Yeah. But uh, over the years, the music did so well, and I, I was able, very, very fortunately, to be in right places at right times and, and have a good career in it. Yeah. Finally, around, let's say, 2013 to 2014-ish, uh, I had a, I've told this before, but I'll tell it. I have a friend named Chris Klepper in Boston. He's into music. He's a synthesizer guy as well as uh, photography. And he, at the time, was in charge of the MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, huge university, for photographic darkroom area. So he had seen one of my photographs that I had let a magazine use uh, of Dusty Springfield with Tom Dowd as they were recording Son of a Preacher Man. Mm. So I had, that was in several magazines, but in this case in Mojo Magazine, and he had seen it 
And he called me up and said, hey, uh, what's this photography thing? And I explained that that's what I also do. And he, he said, well, I bet you've got other photos, don't you? And I said, others, I've got boxes. I've got literally thousands of them. And he said, well, please get them out. And if you really like them and think we could do it, uh, I'll set you up a gallery exhibit in Boston. We'll just start off at near the top there. What, how about that? So I said, great. And I went right back to doing music. Uh-huh. And then a, a few months later, he called me up and said, don't forget, you're going to do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I will. I will. And I went right back to doing the next music job. And then one day he called up and said, well, it's a shame we didn't ever get to do that, but I'm going to drop the whole idea. And I said, what? No, you can't do that. So he really kind of forced me. Yeah. I, I said, you know, I don't have to do this all day, every day in music. Let's yeah. do what else I like. So I got out the boxes of negatives and the digital files because you do progress into digital at, at sure. some point and uh, started getting it together took it up to him. He helped me collate the, uh, the whole thing, decide what should go where and how we'd hang it and really taught me a lot about, I thought you just put them on a wall, but he said, uh-huh. no, no, no. You do this, this way. There's different ways of hanging this for yeah. interest that, you know, and showed me what a, a museum would do and went and, and hung it in this, in the Boston cyber arts gallery. And it, it did really well. We had great attendance, uh, tremendous reviews. Uh, the Boston Globe had a, nice. several great articles about it. So uh, I just said, let's just do this. Yeah. So I, I did more. And I've, since then, I've done a number of exhibits in museums and galleries. But I will say this, and I, I ramble, so you'll ha- have to That's okay. It. This is great. <laughs> uh, about, about two, little, almost two years ago, someone sort of discovered what I was doing that's really in the art, even more in the art and art sales world and uh, the New York scene and, and other international art scenes and said, you know, you've got to uh, do this a little differently. Let me talk to you and show me some things and said, let's stop all these exhibits you're doing. Cause I was showing 16 by twenties, okay. which is what my friends such as William Eggleston, who I grew up with uh, and, and was a great f- photographer and a great friend. That's what he always did. So, that's what museums did, 16 by 20s. And he said, no, no, it's changed. You need large scale things now. I'm talking four feet by six feet uh, or, sure. or three feet by five feet or something like that. You need full scale things. Yeah. So let's work on that. So I checked into the cost of printing those and went, oh, because <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah. So to save money and to do it, to control it more, I bought a full printing I mean, a giant printing machine at great expense uh, and started printing the big prints. Since then, uh, I have some, uh, a guy that a, a lot of music people may know, Chuck Toller in, in uh, Milwaukee, uh, near Milwaukee, has now taken over sort of a man in a manage The way of, he would manage a band is managing, putting together some amazing things that we'll have coming in the next few months. I can't really talk about them. Sure. But it's going to be in my view it's really something I've, i i can't believe and i've always wanted to do but i hope we'll hear you. a lot more about this oh that's great good for you terry okay fun i may come back to some of those things because like i said you've done a lot of really interesting things i uh i i want to hear about led zeppelin 3 
Sometimes you get some silver, but you get a little gold. What did you bring me, my dear friends? Keep me from the gallows pole. What did you bring me? Keep me from the gallows pole. I couldn't get no silver. I couldn't get no gold. You know the way to Deadpool. Keep me gallows pole. Judging by what I was reading, it's <laughs> it sounds a little bit like you and Jimmy Page became friends and talked about maybe starting something, and then he started Led Zeppelin. And that and if in one of those sliding doors moments, it could have almost been you and Jimmy Page in a band together. Tell us the story of how this all worked out, and then how you what you did on Led Zeppelin three. Whew, this will be a long one. So okay. <laughs> the band I was in years ago in the 60s was called Lawson and Four More. Uh, and we had just had our first record out on the Ardent label. Uh, okay. first, uh, it was sort of regional, Mid-South regional, not maybe fully New York and L.A., but mm -hmm. in our out-of-the-Memphis area region. Okay. And uh, they got my, our manager, Harry Chapman, got us on a show called the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. Now, we weren't on the caravan. We certainly weren't the stars. We were an opening act, a local act to open uh, shows in Memphis. So they came and they the show, actually, the venue was Fraser Skateland, a great big <laughs> skating rink on a, a place on just outside of Memphis. And so we were one of the opening acts, but I was so excited because the Yardbirds were on this tour. And they were probably my favorite band at the time. Uh, hard to say because there were so many great bands right back in that era. But I loved the Yardbirds. So we kind of went backstage and hung out and got to meet people. Then the Yardbirds came back on tour, on the next tour. We weren't on that tour, but I went to the sh a couple of shows just to hang out again with them. And so the first thing I did when we got, uh, not the band, just me and a couple of uh, friends, Don Nix, Jim Dickinson, a couple of other guys, went up to a couple of universities where they were playing in Kentucky and, and Northern Tennessee. And I went immediately backstage, left all the other people and went backstage and found Jimmy Page and said, hey, and so started talking and explaining everything and talking more than I had been able to before about working at Saks, the Memphis Sound, all of those things going on. And he loved it because he loved Stacks music. He loved Sun Records, yeah. all the Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, sure. Jerry Lee Lewis. So much great music coming out of Memphis. He was a fan. So we became really close friends right there. When that last show was over, he rode back in the car with me to Memphis and when we got there, I took him over to Arden's studio where I was working and doing a lot of the 
various things, but also stacks things at both studios, stacks and Ardent. And uh, we spent till uh, the rest of the night, three, four, five in the morning, we're in there playing guitars and checking out things and getting out amps and just talking through. And he just wanted to hear all about stacks and Sun. So after that, I kept very close touch with him. Uh, there was no internet, so it had to be snail mail or telephone calls. Mm -hmm. But we kept in touch, traded a couple of a coat. He liked a jacket I had. I liked a coat he had. So we traded them uh, by mail. And uh, he would send me the lead. Well, okay, get, get back to this. He told me that he loved the Yardbirds, but it, they were they had gone down now he didn't see the future for the yardbirds happening and a couple of people were ready to leave the band and everything so he said i think i'm thinking of forming a new band so what do you think and, and uh he said what i'll need to I could maybe a keyboardist rhythm guitarist something like that a bass player and a drummer and i said well the bass player in my band's great you have you met joe once oh okay and uh, I said, and I can play keyboards and rhythm guitar. And he said, well, let's think about this. So he's putting it together. But at one point, I did say, he said, well, I'm thinking of some guys in England. And I said, well, I'm thinking of staying here in Memphis because it's going so well at Stacks and other things I'm doing. So that's probably not what I ought to be doing is getting in another band. And, but do remember this. Had we done that, it wouldn't have been the Led Zeppelin you know right might not have been good or famous at all so mm -hmm. you cannot say oh he could have been in led zeppelin <laughs> right, that's right. not it <laughs> right. it's just a right. short passing as you say little window opening and then you close yeah. it kind of thing yeah. that yeah. didn't work out yeah. but uh he did start sending sending me what they were doing as they recorded he would mail a cassette to me what do you think what do you think i'm going yeah. well this is great yeah. really good yeah and his first choice for singer was a guy named Terry Reed. I don't know if you know that. I know that name. How do I Terry know Terry Reed name? was a big up and coming star in the UK, singing right. star and a guitarist too, a good guitarist. Uh -huh. So Jimmy knew Terry Reed and Terry Reed's voice is incredible. They, his, one of his albums came to be called Super Lungs. And that's what, <laughs> that's what people called him because uh -huh. you couldn't believe how he could sing. So he offered Terry Reed the job to sing in his new band, which was going to be Led Zeppelin. Uh -huh. He had John Paul Jones already committed and looking for that and then would find a drummer after he had Terry as the singer. Terry's manager, Mickey Most, a well-known manager producer in England, said, nope, can't let you do that because you are gonna be a solo act star yourself. Your new album's about to come out. There's no need to dilute that. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame him for doing that. Sure. Sure. Uh, you, did, you don't know what's going to be. And he had a very good album coming out. Right. So he passed on that, told Jimmy, I've got a friend named Robert Plant. Try him. He, here he is. So I introduced them. Robert Plant brought in Bonham. There was Zeppelin. Thank yeah. goodness that was the yeah. choice. It, was, it worked out pretty good. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it did. Anyway, Jimmy would keep sending me, of the first and second album, would send me cassettes before it got released. Then when they started recording the third album, they got behind schedule and they already had a US tour booked. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy called me up and said, I am really stuck. We've got an album partly done, but we need to have it fully done. 
the tour is supposed to support that album. Now we don't have an album. Mm. Can you help me out? I'll fly in to Yet Studio that where we met and uh, hung out and talked. I know it's, he knew it was perfectly good and could do everything he wanted. I'll come back to that studio where we were and you can uh, overdub things as needed. Then we can mix, then we can master and we'll just get this thing finished. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure, come on. And that's what we did. No way. He and, he and whoever was needed would fly in after, right after a show. Uh, the earliest flight they could get after a show, whether it was wow. late night or early morning, uh, red eye, whatever, and come into Memphis. I'd pick him up. We'd go straight to the studio, work, 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 work. Yeah. And then he'd leave in time to get fly to the next Zeppelin uh-huh. show. We did that several times wow. until we got it all finished. Now, Led Zeppelin Three is my favorite Led Zeppelin album. It's great. Um, but it, uh, you know, it's different. There's all this acoustic stuff. And now you telling me this story, I'm wondering if, see, originally I would have thought they went in consciously thinking, let's change it up. Let's do some more acoustic-based stuff. We don't have to be quite so heavy blue, blues-heavy on this. But I'm wondering now, based on what you're saying, if the acoustic stuff was a function of being sort of uh, of the clock ticking, and us no, needing to come no. up with something. It was a conscious, a conscious decision on Jimmy's part. Now, remember, Jimmy Page is the producer. Yeah. He was fulfilling the function of the founder of the group, the producer, one of the writers, the lead guitarist. He was really in charge. Yeah. So, no, he decided, and he is a brilliant musical genius mm-hmm. and a genius outside of music. He's a very, very smart guy. And he was watching the, he knew, like you were talking, alluding to earlier, that you can have a big thing, you can have maybe another big thing, it can be going great, but you can drop down real quick, Mm -hmm. especially on a third album. If you look through historically, a third album on a band is what either makes them have great longevity and be an all-time iconic favorite band, or go off and no offense to yep. fog hat or whoever they, they sure. can go off in that direction too which is still great uh, again not putting down any no. anybody i love no. fog hat. but uh he knew that something needed to change and he he purposely changed it he and and robert went to a cottage in wales and consciously wrote acoustic music mm-hmm. with because they didn't they loved what they did of course mm-hmm. who wouldn't Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're playing this loud, bombastic, great, heavy rock music. But he knew that every one of them was at the top of their game. They're great musicians. Prob- I would dare say the best rock musicians in the world on each of their instruments at yep. that time. Yep. And the best singer, maybe, except for Terry Reed, maybe. Yeah. Uh, the best singer in the world at that time for that style of music. Nobody yeah. could do it better. And there they were together in one band. Wow, that doesn't happen often. The Beatles, no. yeah. Zeppelin, yeah, but yeah. not very often. No. That's what gives you longevity for 50, 60, 80, hundreds of years, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy knew to do that, he, he needed to show more of what they could do musically. So he was purposely writing things more melodic, more acoustic, more less bombastic, less right. powerful, right. but still powerful in other ways. Yeah. And it's very not like... So. Sometimes people I've heard say, oh, it's the acoustic album. Yeah, it's the acoustic album that starts with the immigrant song. <laughs> right, right. No, that's, is, that's, that's why I think I like that album 
the best is because there's a diversity, there's a range of sounds going from immigrant song to, you know, hats off to Roy Wood or whatever. There's a little bit of everything in this album that, uh, you know, the other, the first two especially didn't have. And so that's why I like it so much. Well, great. Thanks. I do as well, uh, but I'm biased. Yeah, of course. uh, (laughs) But I, I honestly believe without the third album, there wouldn't have been the transition to the rain song or stairway yeah. to heaven or something like that. Uh, both of which were in Jimmy's mind already, mm-hmm. but he, he had to go step by step and this was the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, okay. I want to talk about one of your other long standing partnerships and that's George. Thurgood. <clears throat> he, uh, that guy's a trip. I, uh, <laughs> I love him. I saw him in concert once probably, Oh, it's coming up on 20 years. It was at the shoreline in the Bay Area, and it was the fabulous Thunderbirds opened, who I'm going to ask you about next. The middle was George, and the headliner was B.B. King. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was a great, great show. Now, George seems like a really funny guy who could possibly be a little prickly or a little, I don't know. Like, how does he... Does he show up at the studio at the time he's supposed to? Does he, you know, is he reliable? Absolutely. Really? He is one of the ultimate professionals. He's, wow. But I'll tell you what I think George is, is one of the best live showmen out there that I've ever seen. He knows how to, he knows how to read an audience. He knows the simple little things to do that, for instance, sometimes he would, a lot, a lot of times in his shows, probably the one you saw, he would be up there without sunglasses, and then he would reach down and put on sunglasses. And just the way he did it, yes. the crowd would roar. Or he'd put on a hat, and the crowd would go crazy. Well, anyone <laughs> could put on sunglasses and a hat, right. but not the way he does it. Right, right, right. <laughs> so he's a great musician and a great writer and obviously a great artist. But I think the showmanship sets him yeah. apart from almost everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And talk about longevity. They're almost uh, 50 years in now. They're over 40 years in as a I band. Know. I know. It's great. And he does what he does so well. What is the magic of the chemistry between you two? And I think it's interesting that, you know, he has this major success with Bad to the Bone. And then it's the follow-up album where you step in. And that's when, like, I Drink Alone happens. For breakfast, I don't want no coffee or tea. Just me and my good buddy Wiser. That's all I ever need, cause I drink alone. Yeah, with nobody else. Yeah, you know what I drink alone. I prefer to be by myself. I'm curious why 
you know, did he just had the success? Why does he change the team for the Maverick album and then decide to stick with you? What's the magic of your chemistry? Well, here's one in my mind, one of the great stories of rock and roll. Oh yes, bring it. <laughs> George didn't want anybody else because uh, he he was controlling everything before, okay. and he would record it, do it just what he wanted, turn it over to Rounder Records, the label he was on at the time, which is an indie label. It was probably the indie label for years, and they didn't have any control over it, so he didn't want control. But they had just done a deal because of the success of the album that had Bad to the Bone, they had done a deal with EMI to do better distribution than, than they could do at the time, get it in more places, farther up the charts, more sales, take it, as, the, as we say, to the next level, uh, a phrase I'm coining right now. <laughs> you should trademark that. Yes, I should. <laughs> but they wanted to go up a notch, I'll say. Uh -huh. And so the A&R guy, at uh, EMI Records named Gary Gersh, who was one of the, the guys of the industry over the years, mm -hmm. came to Rounder and said, look, I want somebody else to come step in as a producer, or let's call it co-producer, whatever, but sort of put some things in there that, that can move it up a notch again. Mm -hmm. And this was just after the success of the Eliminator album. So he said, how about Terry? We'll go and try that. Well, George, not interested, not interested, not going to do it, not going to do it. But Rounder, I met with, flew in and met with the Rounder people, uh, three people that owned and controlled the company, great people, friends to this day. And they said, yeah, we, this, this would work. We really need to do this. We'll push for it. But George did not want to do it. So Gary Gersh uh, said, well, you just got to meet Terry. Come on, let's have a meeting. So they, I, unbeknownst to me, they had gotten together and made a bet. Really? And the bet was <laughs> we would all go bowling. Now, George loves bowling. And, and Gary said, if you win this bowling match amongst the three of us, I'll give you your way and you just do whatever you want. We'll put it out on EMI and off we go. If I win or Terry wins, then he's going to be co-producing with you. And I did meet George and he said, oh yeah, he's okay we get along yeah all right all right yeah. but he still wasn't agreeing to that so we went to this bowling alley in new york city which, which was under you go down a level under street level i don't remember the name of it and bowl down there and we had this bowling match and i by like one or two pins won the match <laughs> <laughs> so i didn't know that till much later uh -huh. and i just and they came george said well i guess we're going to be working together so, oh good <laughs> but i knew nothing about I could have, you know, missed hitting a spare, and that was it. <laughs> and then, of course, we went on to, we're great friends to this day. I just got a lovely postcard from, from George, and it, I'll let, let you in on one of our private jokes. Please. One thing that, that gets us, uh, got us along so well, George does everything well. His writing, his singing, his playing, but his best playing to me and what I just love because I've always loved it in the blues mm -hmm. such as Elmore James and lots of others is slide guitar. I love slide guitar. Mm -hmm. So whatever song we came up with while we're in the studio, well, let's do this version of Chuck Berry's whatever. And I'd go with a slide. <laughs> <laughs> so after a while, 
it, it got to be just a joke amongst us uh, <laughs> that I would say, George would say, I really want to do six days on the road. I love that. And I said, okay, as long as we do it with a slide. <laughs> so I just, I mean, this is years ago. We're talking yeah. 30 years ago. Right. And just let, this month, I got a beautiful postcard from George that said, I won't say the song, but it's kind uh -huh. of a, a joke. We wouldn't record that song. Uh -huh. Maybe we ought to record whatever, whatever song with a slide. <laughs> <laughs> and it just shows that, I mean, he's such a, you say prickly and I get that because he's, he's so larger than life. He's yes, that's it. That's it. He's made himself a character and yeah. he, he lives that. And that's great because that's yeah. what one thing, one of the things that makes him what he is, but yeah. Oh, Just good. Such a great guy. I love it. I love it. He, he uh, you know, this, as you know, this whole year, basically, the whole music industry is kind of shut down. But I think he must have recently signed on to play the Colorado State Fair or something next year. Because ah. all my social media is just full of these ads to buy tickets to see George next year here in Colorado. So I'm going to try and make sure to see that because uh, I had such a great time that one day. And that's well, the only time I've seen him. Uh, maybe I get to come up and see it too. That would be Ooh, awesome. Please do. That'd be fun. We'll go together. Um, okay, let's. Uh, I want to get to st to stacks, but we should talk about the fabulous Thunderbirds for a minute. Did you? Now I'm not. I'm fuzzy on this. Did you just produce the powerful stuff single that was on the cocktail soundtrack, or did you do that whole album? No, I did that whole album. That okay. started out as a single. Oh. Uh, and it's another crazy story. With, but uh, my manager at the time, Jim Phelan, came to me and said, hey, we had just done you know, this and that and a bunch of albums. He said, I've got, what do you think of the Thunderbirds? I said, I love the fabulous Thunderbirds. Yes. He said, well, they want you to do a single for the movie a, a movie with Tom Cruise. And I thought, Tom Cruise, you know, no <laughs> offense. He's a great actor, I'm sure. But I, I just wasn't the first thing on my mind. Back then, and, especially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a single. I said, I don't do uh -huh. singles. I'm an album guy. 
<laughs> hey, I got on my George Thorogood bravado. Right. No, I'm an album guy. You know? right. <laughs> and uh, he said, look, please do this. It's for Disney. They're, uh, they're going to send in a music director. I said, hey, I don't need a music director. <laughs> anyway, I argued and argued. And finally, he talked me into it. Uh -huh. So we went in the studio. We did the one song, uh, the single, Powerful Stuff. Uh, I loved the band. They enjoyed working. We all just got along great. The only thing that wasn't working quite as well was Disney's music director. <laughs> We're in there looking for the right key for Kim Wilson to sing it in. And uh, we tried it in E. And Kim said, it's a little high for me. I don't know. And then we tried it down in E flat. And, and Kim said, mm, I can get there, but it's still a little high. And then we tried it down in D. He said, oh, that's perfect. Let's do it in D. And Jimmy says, yeah, I'll detune to D, my load E down to D, and this will be great. And the Disney guy, the music director guy, came up and said, oh, it sounded best in, in the E flat. I mean, that really had the right, the right sonic punch and everything. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I just said, okay, E flat it is, wink, wink. And we went on and did it in D. <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> no, it didn't matter. It needed to be where the singer exactly. could sing it properly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still pretty high. I do it live in D and it's up there. Trust me. So we did that single and lo and behold, that album sold over 19 million. The soundtrack album sold over 19 million copies. It's probably yeah. well over 20 by now and became the number one album in the world. Yeah. Uh, powerful stuff. My production was the first single off of it, which did well. And then guess what else was on it? Uh, don't worry, be happy and Kokomo. And, and Kokomo. <laughs> Both of those were huge. Jesus. Yeah. So I'm calling my manager going, hey, got any more singles for movies? <laughs> what else can I do? <laughs> but we like we all liked each other so much that we Good. decided, yeah, let's do the whole album together. Great. And I, I must say I really do like that album. It's not as big as some other things I've done or other people have uh -huh. done or even that they've done maybe. But when I put it on and just listen, mm -hmm. I just, they're so good. Jenny yeah. Vaughn is so great. Yes. Kim Wilson yes. is so great. Fran is so great. Everybody, uh, Preston on the bass is so great. Mm -hmm. Everybody was just so together. I just love yeah. that record. Yeah. I, uh, I bought that record about three years ago. 
And um, yeah, I like it too. Those guys are great. Um, okay, let's talk about stacks for a minute because I mean, uh, so I've been to Memphis a couple of times. I did the stacks museum tour and everything. Yay. It's such hollowed ground. I love everything that came out of there. I'm going to ask specifically about a few people, but you go to work there. And my understanding is Al Bell just puts you in, you're going to start sweeping up. You're going to fetch coffee for people. You're also going to work on some tapes. You're going to do some engineering. How did you, you just went there with a goal of, I want to work at Stacks and I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, I was a very young teenager, actually. Uh, probably, I don't remember the exact age, but probably 15 or 16, something oh like gosh. that. Oh but gosh. I will say it was Steve Cropper who got oh, me Steve. in and did okay. that. Okay. Okay. And of course, most people know, but if you don't, Steve is the amazing guitarist in Booker T and the MGs, the amazing writer of so many big songs like Dock of the Bay and Midnight Hour and so many others. Green Onions. Green, oh, just what an incredible guy. Yeah. One of my lifelong best friends. But he got me in there, yeah. Mm. I had come, knocked on the door, took my guitar, wanted to get in as a kid, mm -hmm. uh, just moved to Memphis, and, uh, and uh, they were politely about to send me out when Steve happened to walk through, saw the guitar case, and the next thing I know, we're talking, playing the guitar. He had me back in the tape copy room, and I was just doing any little chore, wow. not even paid, just an internship yeah. type yeah. thing. Wow. So tell me about working with Isaac Hayes. Did uh, you now, and when I say working, are you just there as people like Al Green and Big Star and Otis Redding are passing through, or are you actively working on like the Hot Buttered Soul album? Oh, no, I engineered it. I was the chief engineer for the album. And Al might have said a co producer in a way, but he had three producers already. He had himself. Marvell Thomas, Rufus Thomas's son, a great keyboard player, and Alan Jones, who was the producer of the Barquets, on as the producer. So he said, you'll be the engineer. I said, okay. But we were all exchanging ideas and things. But yeah, uh, Isaac went in. The Barquets were the backing band, the studio session guys for it. And he had worked the basics of the songs out in advance with the Barquets, mm. not in a practice session, but live going to local clubs and playing these songs uh, much the way Billy Gibbons would watch the people dancing and figure what we need. Mm -hmm. Isaac would, would do songs a certain way and watch the women in the audience and see what they responded to. So uh, he, when he came in, he knew what he wanted to do on this. And this was Isaac's first album as a real artist. He had done one before, but it was almost demos without production and just, just songs and things. But this was uh, his We're Really Going For It album with Al Bell fully behind it. And Al, for those who don't know, the uh, then vice president and head of A&R at Stacks or uh, co-A&R with Steve Cropper, depending on the era. So they were really going for it. You know, so we knew he knew in advance that he'd be overdubbing strings and backing vocals. But he wanted this basic thing that Isaac did first. So Isaac did the vocals live. They're not overdone. They're live. He's sitting at the Hammond organ and the barquets are around in the studio knowing what the songs are, but not the full arrangement. Mm -hmm. So Isaac would start the, the intro rap, like on mm -hmm. By the Time I Get to Phoenix and right. a couple of the others where he's got the whole storytelling thing. And 
talking about the power of love now. I'm going to tell you what love can do. You know when they say love makes the world go round, that's the truth. Love can make you or break you. It can make you laugh, it can make you cry. You're happy, can make you sad. Oh, if you hung out real bad. In a case of jealousy, love can make you mad. Oh, yeah. Everybody, everybody's got his own thing. Everybody's got his way of doing a thing. shall attempt to do a tune that is very popular and it was written by one of the great young songwriters of today now I don't know what he was thinking about or what inspired him to write this tune but it's a deep tune it's a deep meaning to this tune because it shows you power of love can do. And I shall attempt it to do it my way. Just yeah. into it. You can just see that he's just almost in a ha- <laughs> in a haze. How about that? <laughs> an Isaac Hayes. I didn't mean that, but that works. But I mean, a fog really uh-huh. out there. Sure. Just deep into the emotion of it. it just he it's he's really emoting, yeah. really speaking what he he's feeling and what he's learned in the live situations and the band is just kind of ripping on the the basic chord just hitting the one the downbeats and things and watching him and then right when he's ready to go isaac would just you'd see him take his left hand and come down with it to to guide him here we go on the next downbeat we're in the song guys and nod his head and he's by the time i get to phoenix Uh and you're just i mean even in the control room Oh, it's chills, you know. Yes, a, I'm getting chills. Oh, you telling me this? Wow. Yes. And every time I listen to that now, which I try to fairly often. Yeah. Because I love Jim Webb as a writer, yes. really, really love Jim Webb. I love "By the Time I Get to Phoenix" as a song, uh-huh. and I love the version we did with Isaac. Yeah. And when it comes on, I still just can't help but get chills all over when he comes in on that. I got him too. Just you telling the story. I love, I, so, okay. So the, the epic orchestrated nature of songs like Phoenix and walk on by was that, that's, that was that Isaac's idea.
Was that what he yes. wanted, or was that now, something outsiders coming in telling him what to do? A little of both, but it, Al Bell and Isaac Hayes had made the decisions. Okay. They were the, the instigators of this album and where it was going to go. Mm-hmm. Now, Isaac, you must remember, is not just a singer mm-hmm. or a songwriter or a keyboard player. He's fully trained. He can write charts. He could write for orchestra. He's a horn player. Almost all horn players read and write. So he was very aware. He didn't write the actual charts, but he put the ideas into the arranger who was doing it. I uh, think, was it either Dale Warren or Johnny Allen? I'd have to look. It was one of those two guys. Okay. And they went up to Detroit and, and did the, the symphony and uh, got the backing vocals on from girls up there. Mm. But that's all that was added. And then, but the basis was there and they knew where it was going. This was a plan. Most great things are a plan from the beginning. I feel like uh, Isaac doesn't get enough credit for the for his musical genius. I feel like sometimes his whole output gets reduced down to the Shaft soundtrack, which it should. Shaft, that's it's a that's a masterpiece. Yeah. But and I don't mean I hope this I don't mean to sound reductive, but how many there weren't there aren't another a lot of other black men, black artists at that time, maybe Barry White, Marvin Gaye to some degree, whose musical palette and creativity is so broad so as to create something like Phoenix and Walk On By and Shaft and, and the Black Moses album and all this stuff. And there aren't a lot of other, maybe there were hundreds of black artists who could have gone there and weren't allowed to, but he did. And there right, aren't that right. many. And I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for his genius. I, I, I agree with you 100%. And he's a chef, don't forget. But anyway, <laughs> I, <laughs> I agree with you just totally. Yes. He was so deep. Yes. So, so many of these people, I've been lucky to be around. I just yes. can't believe it because they are so full of talent that it's overflowing. Yes. You cannot believe how much they can do. I think it's a good analogy to say Marvin Gaye and Barry White. Marvin Gaye, I would say, has so much of the talents maybe that Isaac had, maybe in some ways other talents in more ways. But I don't think Marvin could write the charts and stand in front of an orchestra and conduct as if he was doing the the London Symphony Orchestra or something. Barry White, I always thought as great as he was, kind of stole the whole Isaac thing. But he did it well, so that's good for him. And Barry White was very musical. He was even involved in Bobby Fuller and the Bob Keane and, uh, and, uh, uh, situation in L.A. He was an engineer as well. So all of those guys extremely talented. But I would put Isaac, honestly, again, I'm biased, but I'd put him at the top of that list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would too. And I just don't, I don't think enough is made of what a miracle it is a black man at that time was given the reins to produce and create the music that he made. It's uh, it's miraculous, and he doesn't get enough credit for it. You know, um, let me let me interject. Uh, yes, briefly. please. The reason for that was Stax. Really, Jim Stewart, Al Bell, Steve Cropper. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, everyone at Stax was tremendously talented. You can't yes. fault Booker T. He Booker T. Jones. True. Uh, also, another one. He has a, 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 a master's degree in music from the University of Indiana. 
He can write any chart. He can Good do point. anything. He's another one. Yep. We're talking guys who have so much going on. It's amazing. But what allowed them to do that was that Stacks did not care if you were white, if you were black, if you were Muslim, if you were Jewish, if you were anything. And that's the that opened a world to me coming from to, to Memphis, coming from El Paso, Texas, where we're already very diverse and already I had, of course, lots of Hispanic kids in my classes, black kids, military brought in all sorts of people from every race, creed, color, religion, anything you could think. So I already sort of grew up in that. But when I got to Memphis, which was a much more closed city racially uh, in the South at that time, to go to Stacks, it was heaven. It was like, ah, oh, yeah. this is where nothing matters yeah. except what you can do. Yes. Do well musically. Bless them. Bless them yes, for it. Um, okay, let's talk about Big Star. As you well know, those first, you know, number one record and that, those made very little difference or impact at the time and are, and is now considered like one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it rises year and year after year as being this hidden gem that's not quite so hidden anymore. What was it like working? You became friends with Alec Chilton. Talk about someone who my perception of them can be that they might be a little prickly. Tell me what it's like working with Big Star. Won't you let me meet you at the pool? Maybe Friday I can get tickets for the dance. Now off my back Tell him what we said about painted black Rock and roll is here to stay Come inside well it's okay Now shame Okay, yeah, Alex, I will say he was prickly. <laughs> okay, that one we have right. Got it. <laughs> but he was, he was my friend who was prickly, so that's yeah. okay. Yeah. He really was that guy who, what, what is, the, is the old saying, danced to the, his own drummer or beat, you know. He his own drum. did things his way, and he wasn't going to do it any other way. And part of that came from when he was in the box stops, he was told what to do. And he even at that very young age, he was a star at 16, a worldwide star at 16. Even at that age, he didn't want to be told what to do, but he did it for a while. But when he came to me, because uh, I worked on the box stops things as an engineer, even played on Cry Like a Baby, uh, uh, a harpsichord bit in one little part. Once again, I began 
Alex came to me as we were recording those saying, I'm, I'm about had it with this, being told what to do. I want to make my own album. Would you tell me what to do? <laughs> so we got to be friends together and recorded a solo album together, which morphed into him meeting my, my well, he met him in other ways, but my close friend also, Chris Bell, yeah. came in to Ardent. I brought him in to do some overdubs on my stuff and just sort of hanging around it morphed into being Big Star out of several other groups of people coming together and playing and doing live shows and gigs and stuff. Let's talk about Chris Bell for a minute because he's another one of these, I think that's become a little bit of a tragic figure. Um, What do you, what was the magic of Chris Bell? Tell me, tell me about him. Well, I I met Chris through several friends and bands that I was playing with. He was in a local band called the Jinx which also had as the bass player, uh, Bill Cunningham, who later became uh, uh, in the box tops as bass player, and is also an arranger and arranged some of Alex's solo stuff. But anyway, a lot of talented people running around. But at the time, we were all kids. You know, I mean, we're, they're a, a year or two younger than me at the time, and still are probably. But I had been in the studio for a few more years. So Chris, once he kind of got a whiff out of all of it, saying, oh, I want to I want to get in there in the studio. And I said, well, I'm doing a solo album thing, working on it. Why don't you come play some guitar? So he came in and just turned it on. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this this can really work. This Because he was a huge Jimmy Page fan, a huge Beatles fan. I mean, really huge Beatles fan. So he was and a big Who fan. He loved uh, I Can See For Miles and all that sort of stuff they were doing. So he was really saying, I can do this, watch this, and played on my stuff so well. And He played on your Home Sweet Home album? Yes, he played at least wow. two songs, played the solos. Okay. And uh, just blew me away. So I, well, that's certainly better than I can do it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we became very close friends. I would say for almost 10 years, we were as much best friends as you could talk about, you know, at that age. And would come a lot and hang out and we'd play shows together, little shows around the area, would get different band names up get different guys into play. And that's sort of what morphed into Big Star. Then Chris started writing 
and he'd bring a song or two and say, what do you think of this? And I'd say, yeah, that's, that's good. In fact, there's one song called that I Created a Monster, and it doesn't have lyrics, but it's a melody that I remember well to this day that we were working on together. I really ought to finish and do something with it. So we would uh, just write little things uh, together, and but he started doing it more and more on his own, and that, great, go, this is awesome. Yeah. So in a way, you might say I was a mentor, but that sounds so much more important than it probably was, or right. officious or something. But uh, really just hanging out, having fun. Yeah. He had a back house. He was from a well-to-do family. They had a large estate in East Memphis. Mm. And there was a back house there from when they bought the property, an old little farmhouse, I guess. Mm -hmm. And we would go use that. It had electricity. So we'd use that as a rehearsal space, mm -hmm. hanging out and record and put a dark room in there. So wow. he was into photography as well. A lot of us were. Oh, wow. But uh, it was just hanging out, having fun. And then when we, he got going, we did an, an album called Rock City. Is yep. sort of you can hear the genesis of big star happening there okay. sort of what it was is we were doing the memphis beatles in our minds mm -hmm. we were being the beatles and doing their kind of music but of course it wasn't really it had its own flavor which always happens when but that, a lot of artists do that they start out copying somebody and it turns into what they do even John yeah. Lennon would write songs listening to other people's music, playing it backwards. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. Um, do you, uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about uh, Chris's sexuality. Did he ever tell you anything? Did you ever get a sense of that? No, never did. Uh, I've heard that years later, of course, and everybody talks about it now. But at the time, there were two guys in the, that were in the thing, a guy named Richard Roseborough, who was one of our drummers and played on some of the drums on Radio City by Big Star. Also turned out later to be homosexual tendencies. And uh, people say that about Chris. I never saw it. Mm -hmm. I never, nothing about that ever came up. Mm -hmm. Maybe people who felt that way at the time were a little afraid to, yeah. to say it yeah. or for, because you'd be made fun of or whatever. Sure. I, mean, I, I wouldn't have, but. Right, uh, totally different time. 
the era was was different. Yeah. Did you ever see him with girlfriends? Did you ever, did you guys ever double or anything like that? <laughs> I could tell a story that I won't. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, de Chris definitely dated some. Okay. Okay. Well, good. Yeah, you never know when people. It's easy when people pass on and they, their legacy and their yeah um, gets big to speculate. And um, I just wondered what your you knew him better than than most. I wondered what your experience was. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one little story too. I did an. Uh, there was a great local band called the Shortcuts hmm. uh, that had a great lead singer called Eddie Harrison. But I was doing some recordings on them for a, uh, one of the local, one of the, well, a regional label. And uh, I found out that the organist in the band, a guy named Wally, could sing too. And he sounded a lot like John Fogarty. So after our session one day, I had written a couple of songs. I said, hey, let's do these songs. And Wally, you sing it. And we'll do, so I did sort of our version of Creedence Clearwater mm -hmm. with him singing. But it couldn't come out as the shortcut. So I licensed it to a label in France, Barclay Records. And it came out as the Wolf River Band. Wolf River is one of the rivers in Memphis. Okay. So I call it the Wolf River Band, and we put it out over there. Chris got Chris Bell got so mad because he decided I was stealing this music from the band and putting it out so that I could get rich and they weren't going to get paid, which wasn't at oh, all the case. Oh no, 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 no! So he came one day and was yelling at me and screaming, just I mean, really in a, a rage, yeah. out in the back parking lot of of, of Ardent Records, Ardent Studios. So we literally ended up in a fist fight. And I pushed him up against uh, my car that was there, and, and he hit me once, and I hit him once, and we're, I said, no, it's not. So anyway, yeah. we became estranged, you might say, oh, for a while. And then Chris did his conversion, the deep conversion to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came back one day and said, I've got to talk to you. And he said, I've learned to make amends for things I've done wrong. And he said, can we talk? So I went in, and we had a long talk. And he said, I want to apologize for that day. I didn't realize I shouldn't have acted that way. Please, can we be friends again? Mm -hmm. I said, of course, you know, no problem. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. 
Yeah. And he said, and by the way, I'm recording uh, some stuff of my own. So yeah, I've heard of that. And I've got a demo of come and listen to it. So he came and played me, I Am The Cosmos. and he said uh what do you think and i said i love the song uh it's production quality to me honestly is not quite up there to get it released on a big label and get it moving and he said well that's kind of what i've been afraid of could you help me we'll redo it and i said absolutely we'll do that but i'm working on a zz top album right now i've got another month or two to go or whatever however long it was and we'll get to it and I kept putting it off a little, and then Chris had the car wreck and died, and we never oh, did it. Oh man! But of course, that song is now yeah. recognized as one of the top exactly. emotional pop songs ever. Yeah. Even even as it was. So yes. Probably good wow. thing we didn't redo it. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Wow. What about? Uh, I'm guessing. It's, I think your path crossed with uh, Al Green. Now, I, I believe you produced a, a latter day, more of like an '80s or '90s Al Green record. Correct. But were you were you interfacing with Al during like Let's Stay Together and Love and Happiness?
What happened, and that was all recorded, except for a few overdubs, that was all tracked and the vocals mostly done by a great, great producer, another bit of a mentor to me, that de someone who definitely taught me some things, a guy named Willie Mitchell. He legend. had a studio, yeah. oh, what a legend. He's, yeah. His studio was called Royal Studios, but we all called it High, H-I, because uh, High Record Label was based there. Okay. So all of the Al Green stuff would, would come out on high records. So when Willie would record and track, he felt, and I think a lot, some people felt around the, the Memphis area that his technical capabilities weren't quite up to what we had at Arden Studios because we were the first to get four track, the first to get eight track, the first to get this and that and really pushing to be ahead of the curve, another thing I'll coin a phrase, state of the art, let's say. Uh, I'm good at Great market. Yep. <laughs> but people would track and get it just ready to mix and then bring it over to Ardent for mixing. So Willie did that on some of the uh, Ann Peebles and uh, Syl Johnson and, and uh, some of the people he was producing and this guy he had just done called Al Green. Mm -hmm. And he brought things like like you just said, mm -hmm. uh, the, the things that became the singles, he would bring over there and mix. And he really, as much as I mixed it, he taught me more about mixing. <laughs> but the, the, it was more him than me, I, I would say. But I was there, yes. And I was running the board. But at his, his he, well, he taught me emotion in music. People like John Fry, that was the founder and owner of Ardent Studios and Records, and people like Steve Cropper, Jim Stewart at Stax, uh, Bobby Fuller, uh, or even earlier at his little, well, very good little studio in El Paso, uh, had taught me things about the technical aspects and stuff and things about production. But I will never forget the first time mixing an Al Green thing for Willie. He said, well, go ahead, do your thing, get it like you think it ought to be. You know, he's letting me go. And I'm, okay, I'll put 10K up here, boost a little, I'll do this, I'll get it you know, just sounding just right, spread across the stereo spectrum or do the mono, whatever we were doing, what, and just the way I think it ought to be. And he would look and he'd, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Had his eye, eyes back, raising his eyebrows a little. And I remember the one time he said, that's all good sounding, but it's not moving you. And I said, what do you mean moving you? He said, well, we like to go to these blues clubs and feel it. We like the impact of it. And we like the movement we get and the dancing and everything people do from the, from the impact. I said, what causes the impact? <laughs> he said, well, it's usually the bass that's doing that. We need some thumping going on, the bass drum and the bass. And he'd reach over and do a couple of little things. And he said, you see what I mean? I'd go, oh, yeah. And I'd do a little more. And then he said, ah, that's moving me. Don't, don't change it. That's moving me. <laughs> that's it. And put it down. And I'm sitting there thinking, Technically, I thought I had done well, mm -hmm. but there's more to it, isn't there? Okay. So I started thinking on another level, uh, another brain part of the brain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the creative, well, I don't know what part of the brain it would be, but the emotional right. part. Yeah. And uh, he definitely taught me that. And so I started listening carefully to that and everything from nice. then on. That's wild. Did your path ever cross with Otis Redding? Were you yes. ever in the same room with Otis Redding? 
I was in the same room with Otis at Stax. Now, you got to remember, Otis Redding and Steve Cropper were best friends. Really? Oh, they were so tight. They were so close. Otis loved Steve to death and really trusted him to entrusted him with his production and songwriting mm. because Otis would write something and bring it to Steve. And what do you think? And Steve would go, I love it. Maybe we need a, a bridge going off into a four change or you know, whatever it might be. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But I was in the studio as Otis was doing some of his work, but never doing the knobs or engineering or being the guy on the session in those Steve was doing that he could do everything but I was observing then they go off to Monterey and do the Monterey Pop Festival mm -hmm. and for those who haven't seen it I highly recommend you watch both the Jimi Hendrix and the Otis Redding right. uh, films from that I think the Otis one is called Shake and he was something that was yep. really a special show so yep. while he's out there in the Bay Area San Francisco he's at one point, literally sitting on a dock at a bay. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting in the evening sun Watching the ships roll in Then I'll watch them roll away Watching the tide Sitting on the dock of the bay Waiting I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay I had nothing to feel for Look like nothing Watching the tide Sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Look like nothing's gonna change Everything still remains the same I can't do what ten people tell me And is writing a song about it, watching the ships come in and everything, and just sort of thinking about his life and where he had gotten. And after this big, great, amazing response from the hippie community in San Francisco, we'll call them lovingly. And uh, so he's sort of, if you listen to the song, he's thinking about where, what led him there and what he's doing and what got him where he's been. And he's thinking about Memphis and Georgia and, and everything, you know. Mm -hmm. So he comes back, plays the song for Steve. Steve puts his input on it, says, I think we need to add this and do that. And uh, so they end up as the co-writers of Dock of the Bay, and they record it. And then we're, Steve's getting ready to do the new mixing on the album, get it all done. Otis, is, this is December 68, I think. And Otis is going off with the Barquets in the airplane he's recently purchased to Wisconsin, I believe it was, or somewhere right up there 
and has the plane crash. He's dead. All the Barquets except for two are dead. One who wasn't on the plane and Ben Colley, the trumpet player who lived through it and found something to hang on to in the lake they hit. So Otis is dead. All of a sudden, I'm sitting at home. Actually, I'm sitting at John Fry's home. We're watching something, some movie with late at night and uh, we get a phone call. I don't remember if it was Jim Stewart or Steve Cropper, but I think it was Jim Stewart and said, you know, the, the worst thing ever has happened. Otis is dead and no one could believe it. Yeah. Everyone's stunned. He was the biggest artist on the label. Yeah. He was the label. Yeah. He was, I mean, <laughs> he was breaking bigger than ever yeah. too. Yeah. So, uh, Al Bell was in Las Vegas. He got the news. Uh, he was there to do a music thing. Doesn't drink at all, but he started drinking after he heard that. Got drunk, went out and just playing the tables and just crazy. Yeah. Just, I can't yeah. believe this is horrible. Woke yeah. up the next morning, he told me, somehow got to his hotel room in that casino hotel, lying on his bed with his clothes fully on and $40,000 in cash on the bed <laughs> that he had won. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He didn't even know he had won it. Wow. So, but everybody is just just out of their minds yeah. about this. Yeah. yeah. So Steve calls up and said, um, we've got to finish Dock of the Bay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have horns. We need horns. We've got to overdub horns. We need to mix. So he brings it over to Arden Studio, asks me to, to work with him on it, on the mix. And I uh, get set up the mics for the horn players. We have the Memphis Horns come in. They, they were going to go be on this show. But because they were needed, knew they were going to be needed for sessions, they stayed back and the Barquets went. Mm -hmm. So um, we somehow in a fog, it's the, the one I remember most session days, 100%. I mean, I could go back and pick up right where I left off in almost any session mm -hmm. where the board was set and everything. But that day is just a fog because everyone was crying yeah. in tears. Just can't believe it. But we finished Dock of the Bay and uh, sent it off to Atlantic because they wanted it right now. An artist has died. We need a single, yeah. you know, yeah. capitalizing the carpetbaggers that they were up there. Yeah. They rushed it, got a single out. The rest turned out to be musical history. Amazing. Amazing. So sad. He's one of those people that you just would love to have seen what he would have done. You know, it was oh. just getting started. Yep. It was the beginning, you know, and again, I don't, I know I've said this two or three times, but I'll say it again. You're around a person like that and you're overwhelmed. Yeah. These, these kind of people, even if they're not stars yet, when you first meet a person like that, there's no denying them. You just yeah. know they have not only the talent, they have the wherewithal, they're at the right place, but even perhaps most importantly, they've got the drive. Yeah. They're going to drive their way through any obstacle and get there yeah. because they're just that deep. Yeah. And Otis was, very One nice, very uh, congenial, lovely guy, polite, mm -hmm. quiet until he wanted to sing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But just, uh, I mean, a wonderful guy. And there yeah. he goes. He's dead. It's, it's oh. done. Shocking. I, I had thrown out to our Patreon supporters that I was going to be talking with you. And a couple people came back with and some questions. And they back the money and they said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not paying for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, quite the opposite, actually. Uh, so Michael Bagford, wanted, we're going to go completely the opposite direction. Michael Bagford wanted to know about working on the Iron Maiden album, Final Frontier.
Wow. Uh, I didn't run the board on that. Okay. A good friend of mine was their producer and engineer on that. But they came to use my studio, which was Compass Point Studios in Nassau, Bahamas. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I was asked for a little help setting up the mics. Uh, and can, how can we do... They wanted to do it live as much as possible, but they're so loud. Yes. And there were two guitarists, all with giant guitar rigs, uh -huh. <laughs> and all in one room. That was going to be insane. So uh, I was asked, how can we possibly run uh, the microphones to your other studio? There were three studios in the building, two big studios. So I set up one guitarist rig in a, a whole different studio way down the hall, ran got special cabling and everything impedance so the impedance would be right and all these things done just right so he could sit in the room and play with his band but his rig was off in a whole different room mm -hmm. so in the in one room we had the drums the bass was in actually a third room i put uh, steve harris's bass in the tv lounge the amp <laughs> so amps are all over the building in different uh -huh. places <laughs> so they can play loud and be what Iron Maiden is and does. Uh, I had amps all over the place, and the, but in the in the one room, all the band members are standing there: two guitars, bass, drums, and then I had Bruce singing in the vocal booth. I had a vocal booth in the Studio A that was first built for Mick Jagger when they were Stones were coming down to do. Uh, emotional rescue, I think it was. Oh, right. Okay. I'm pretty sure that was, but maybe anyway. One of the Stones things they did there. Uh, there was a booth still there that was built for Jagger, so I put Bruce in that booth. As he let me know several times, it didn't have the air conditioning. <laughs> so we'd have to pause, and he could come out and get some fresh air in there. Uh -huh. And Bruce, man, he is such a loud and good singer. As well, you may, I'm sure you know this, he's a pilot, 757, uh -huh. yeah. 767 pilot for mm -hmm. pilots of the British Airways and other, yeah. had his own uh, air, airline owner, owned airplanes yeah. and rented them out to BA and other airlines. He's a real, real different big guy than most uh -huh. singers in a band. Uh -huh. But on this, he was the singer and he goes loud and there's a lot of, as in every singer, but there's a lot of moisture that comes out of your mouth when you sing. So first thing I know, the microphone has shut down. I had a Neumann U47 FET mic on him, and it just shut down because it shorted out from the moisture. So I would get another one and put in there, and after a take or two, it would short out. So I've got all these screens in between him and everything, and uh -huh, <laughs> trying uh -huh. to find something to keep the mics going because he's so basically so powerful. Right. You know how when you're going to take a picture and they say, watch out, you'll break the camera. That's uh -huh. him for singing, you know. He was so good and so powerful he's blowing oh, up the great. gear <laughs> that's great yeah i uh i'm gonna ask you more about compass point here in a minute because i'm fa i'm pretty fascinated with that place i wanted to another one of our patreon members asked me to ask you about working on the fast way album waiting for the roar
Oh, this is so good because I don't get asked that very much. Oh, good. Because as you know, that album uh, starts to incorporate more synthesizers than what they had been doing before. And yeah. uh, that was a band that should have had more, I think. They, they never quite took off like they, like they should have. Tell us about Fastway. Yes. Now, I'll go back a little bit. After the Eliminator album, because of the success of it, and Eliminator, people started realizing, hey, this is a blues rock album from a blue little three-piece band from Texas. Wait a minute. What are these machines and synthesizers and everything else doing on it? Oh, look what it sold. It's a hit. Oh, we need to do that. So I got asked to do what I did for ZZ Top, in quotes, for Johnny Winter, for Molly Hatchett, for... Uh, for the fabulous Thunderbirds, all these people, Jason and the Scorchers, do this for us, do that for us, do that for us. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't do the same thing for every band because every band's different. They need to do their thing. So I'm kind of caught in the middle in several, several instances of doing, quote, what I did for ZZ Top with these machines and things and production values on somebody that's not ZZ Top. And I'm trying to keep a band true to what they really do and yet and make the label happy or the management, whatever, by doing enough, you know, so it's, it's really a tight line to walk. The Fastway was indeed one of those bands. Mm -hmm. They had had a previous album that had some success. And what was that single they had? Um, I can't remember now, but they had a single that did reasonably well, not right. a big, big hit, but a, a hit in the middle right. size hit. But they were just being the band. And they had come from other bands, uh, Humble Pie a little bit, uh, Fast Eddie Clark from Motorhead. Uh, yeah, Pete Way originally. Yeah. yeah, so these guys made a new band, and it was called Fast Way because Fast Eddie Clark and Pete Way. So right. Fast Way was a good name, so they made up a band, had a medium hit. Then I got called in to be the guy that changes the band, mm -hmm. which I didn't want to do because I liked the band. But I had to do in some ways. So I went ahead and uh, did use uh, machines, samples for drums. Had a friend of mine, Carl, come in and do Fairlight pro pro uh, programming for it. Recorded that uh, at Abbey Road. They had got two new guys in the band from Ireland. Uh, or was it even three? It was three new guys. Anyway, the band was at least half Irish now. Mm. Uh, and the singer, Dave Clark, uh, was an Irish guy. And he is one of those guys who has one of those voices, like a Robert Plant, a Terry Reed, a Janis Joplin, mm. opens his lungs and stand back, out it comes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was really fun working with him. And I just uh, did everything I could on that album to, to make it really something. And I am always biased. I like what I do. Otherwise, why did I do it? Of course. If I don't like it. I better get out of the business. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that album. Yeah, I remember yeah. one particular day when we finally had the first band track together on the song Waiting for the Roar, this actual song, the lead song. And I'm listening to it back with all the stuff on it in Studio 2, Abbey Road Control Room, where the Beatles did most of their recording. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting there in Abbey Road, in the Beatles domain, listening to this powerful stuff come back and i was just oh thank you bud this is great yes, yes. oh <laughs> well, that touches me i get it i get that it, yes it, it turned out it wasn't it did well in some countries but it wasn't the big hit that everyone right. wants everything to be sure but still it didn't do poorly i mean it did no. okay 
but uh, uh, we took it to Clive Davis one time in New York before we released it. I played it for Clive and I, this helped validate my opinion on it at least. Clive said, that's one of the best and most powerful singles I've ever heard. I love this. Can I have it? I said, oh, I'm sorry, it's on CBS. I yeah. want it. And now I wish we had, he loved it so much. I wish we had oh. taken it away from CBS. Somehow I couldn't do yeah. it. Put it on with Clive. He was ready to go, really push it. It might have done better, but wow. Anyway, I mean, he's got golden ears. Yeah, I mean, he, he knows he, hits when he hears them yeah, and he backs he's, them. He's done a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Wow. Okay. Um, the listener that uh, asked me about that, BJ Cramp, also wanted to know what your thoughts on Bobby Fuller was. Were you put out an album in 2013, West Texas Skyline, which is a tribute to Bobby? What is your, I mean, maybe you could ask this a lot. Maybe it's too personal. I don't know. What's your take on how Bobby died? What do you think happened? No, I'll talk about it uh, because I'm still angry about it. Really? Uh, Bobby was my very first music mentor. Hmm. Somebody who already was doing good things in the music business. Mm -hmm. And I was a, a literally a young teenager, just turned teenager when I met him, like 12 or 13 years old. Wow. I had gone to a uh, junior high school dance, class dance, and, and lo and behold, Bobby Fuller's band was the band at this oh class gosh. dance. Oh my gosh. And that's the first, first band I ever heard live. First time I ever heard guitars through amps, microphones through a PA, and a band right in front of you doing it live. Mm -hmm. And I was awestruck. Yeah. Because not, not only, he was a local guy at, in El Paso, Texas at the time, yes. But man, was he a really good local guy. He owned his own nightclub. He owned his own record label. He had put in his own studio with 
real Ampex and Telefunken equipment. I mean, a real good home studio. Mm -hmm. He was, and his songs were on the radio. It was in number one, two, or three every week. Yeah. It's a new single he put out on, now to me, listening locally in El Paso and the Southwest Texas, the far West Texas region, mm -hmm. listening on the radio. And there's a guy's number one, for all I knew, I thought he was number one in England and right. Italy and Israel right. and Japan. He's, this guy's number one. Yeah. So I go to a junior high dance and there's this guy playing with his band who's number one yeah. and so good and loud and big and powerful. And I was just, wow. So I, I was, couldn't help myself. I went up and, and at, after they finished the set, said, oh, Mr. Fuller, sir, I've got a little guitar I got for Christmas and I've been learning some songs and, and I can play. Can I maybe sit in with you, mm -hmm. play with your band for a minute? And I say this a few times, I've said this, but I love saying it. Bobby Fuller was such a wonderful, genuine, kind human being. Instead of saying, hey, little junior high kid student at your dance, blank yourself, go away and eat something and leave me alone. No, he said, sure, son, what do you know? Handed me his guitar, a Stratocaster. First time I had touched an electric guitar ever. Yeah. Yeah. My guitar I had gotten was a Montgomery Ward's uh, uh -huh. acoustic I got for Christmas. You know, I could barely push the strings down. Right. <laughs> but I, I said, well, I've, I've learned Peggy Sue and I've learned uh, O'Donna. I, I can play those. And so he got the other guitar in the band, the other guy's instrument, and stood there with me. And I sang and played and he played along with me so that the chords were right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Peggy Sue and O'Donna. Uh -huh. And uh, that was it. So from then on, I was just wowed by him. Yeah. So since he was nice, I'd call him up. He'd given me his phone number. Oh I went gosh. by his house. I'd ask him questions. How do you write a song? How do you produce a record? Why are you turning that? What does this mean? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And he became, I didn't know it at the time, but started me down the path towards being a musician, a producer, uh, an engineer, whatever mm -hmm. it is I do or did or wanted to do. Or whatever so i call him the my first music mentor wow. and he really was so then uh about the time i left el paso and moved to memphis he was leaving el paso and went to los angeles where he ended up as a long story with it a couple of trips and different players and things that happened but he ended up with bob keen at delphi records signed to them uh, Bob Keane liked Bobby so much. And Bob Keane was quite the producer. He was a very well-known musical guy. So he uh, created his own independent uh, sub-label of Delphi called Mustang Records just for Bobby Fuller wow. and released a couple of records. And then, uh, he, uh, of course, I Fought the Law went all over the world as a huge top five hit everywhere. Mm. One of the really all-time great singles. Still a classic. And it sounds great. Yep. It, the production is great. The, the engineering is great. Playing is play, playing and singing everything. It's top class all the way. Still, every time I hear it on the radio, I just go, wow. Or anywhere. You just mm -hmm. knock you out. It's sure. so well done. And then he had, you know, of course, uh, Love's Made a Fool of You and Let Her Dance. Uh, three, uh, I call that a, a triple threat of great, great songs Bobby Fuller had. I had moved to Memphis. It was in my band there, though I'm not my band, but the band I was in with the guys whose band it was, I uh, was in. And we were playing shows and gigs and everything. And I got the news one day that Bobby Fuller had died 
and they thought he had committed suicide by drinking gasoline. Mm. And I'm just, wait a minute. Yeah. Bobby wouldn't do that. He's not yeah. going to drink gasoline. Well, it turns out over the years and everybody going through all the evidence as it happened, no way it was suicide. He was murdered. Mm. No, it's an unsolved case. In fact, there's an unsolved mystery TV show about yeah. it and yeah. several of those. We just, nobody knows exactly for sure who, because no one's been uh, indicted, tried, yeah. convicted, any of that. Yeah. But he, he was murdered. There was something going on. I don't know the full story, but right. I know he didn't kill himself. You know that. Okay. I read well, somewhere that- this. Let, let yeah. me tell you this much. I have friends who were there that very day his body was discovered from El Paso. They saw the police pick up the can of gas from the car, throw it in the garbage and pick up match, a matchbook that was in the car, throw it in the garbage. What? And other things, just throw away. And the guys said, excuse me, sir, isn't that evidence? Yeah. Uh, it's just a rock and roll death. Who cares? Oh. So oh. Ugh, I'm still angry. Yes. I Don't read somewhere that <laughs> I read somewhere that he, it may have had something to do with, I guess he was hanging out with mafia girlfriends or had girlfriends that were mafia yeah. girlfriends and they may have done something. It sounds like, a, I mean, gas and matches and stuff. I could see that. That sounds like a story, doesn't it? But I don't know that to be true myself. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wondered what the story was there. I, I believe you. I've never known either. I mean, it's a mystery. It's one of these rock and roll mysteries like Sam yeah. Cooke or oh. something, you know, like what happened, what really happened to these people? And now exactly. I, I'm with you. Something more than we know happened in all those. Yeah. Cases. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about Compass Point for a bit. I have always had a fascination with that place. In fact, I've thought about doing an episode just on people who worked there or recorded there because it just sounds like, first of all, it's something that the music industry can't sustain anymore is this uh, beautiful uh, studio out in the Bahamas on a beach pay all, you know, paying for people to stay there and eat there and sleep there and record there. They don't do that anymore. So when you were in charge of Compass Point, did you live there? Oh, yeah. Well, no, I didn't live in the studio, but I lived right. uh, for the first year because I was there for 26 years. Gosh. Uh, I, the first year I did live right across the street from the studio, mm -hmm. but I found out quick that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> really? Why? So, middle of the night, knock, knock, knock. Hey, I've got to do, do an overdub. No, sorry. <laughs> so... Uh, but yeah, it, it was uh, quite the place, a definite destination studio. Yeah. But to, to record there, you needed at the very least a budget, whether you had the money yourself or in most cases it was a record company paying for an artist that had enough of a track record to say, we're going to fly all these people and send all their equipment in and pay for hotels and restaurants and all that stuff. The artists loved it because they could get away from the record company. Mm -hmm. If they were from New York or LA, they didn't have the, the A&R guy or any other executives coming by every day bothering them. Mm -hmm. You know, it took a lot to get, get there. So mm -hmm. artists loved it. Plus there was a beach right across the street and mm -hmm. uh, it was a great studio, had great acoustics. So wonderful place. Yeah, I was there for many, many years. It seems like a blink of an eye, but it, yeah. it was. What are one or two of your favorite stories or interactions from that time? Because I'm guessing everybody passed through there. I mean, I think I was looking at your website of people that you also worked with. And there's David Bowie and you mentioned Mick Jagger and UB40. I mean, every, every, I'm guessing every 
rock star that had enough clout would have wanted to record at Compass Point just because it's the Bahamas and they could lay on the beach. It's like a paid vacation. So give yeah, us a, it, tell us a couple stories. It was a bit like that, but and I, I feared when I first went down there, I feared that because I was going not only to become a partner in the ownership and running and be the manager, the full manager running the studio. Of course, the partner would be with Chris Blackwell, who founded it, built it, thought it all up and owned Island Records and discovered Bob Marley and U2 and so many others. But anyway, uh, uh, I feared when I went down there that on at least on my projects, that because I, I was going to be a client, bring my own productions in there too, that maybe the beach would be a distraction and people would be, oh, I don't want to work today. I want to go fishing or something like that. But it really wasn't that way. There's something about the place that engendered a work ethic that you really wanted to work hard because it, it sounded good acoustically in the rooms. It was just, I mean, you knew that the Stones had recorded here, Back in Black by ACDC was done here. All these great things were done here. Uh, you knew, oh, I better do, do good too. So I, I, I found a great work ethic. Uh, Story-wise, I've told it a couple of times, but it's, a, it's such a good story. Uh, Bjork was down there. Oh. Recording from, uh, of course, she's uh, from Iceland, but she had moved to the UK by that time. But she's down there recording. Uh, and she came, as did some people, to avoid, to not get into the problem of UK taxation for things that were recorded in the UK. Right. Because at the time, if you recorded in the UK, you were taxed on that mm -hmm. but if you're the same thing was recorded just outside the borders of the uk mm -hmm. and you weren't taxed on it so mm -hmm. a lot of people came because we were sort of uk based chris blackwell was was a, a, a british guy british American right. guy so we had a lot of people come from the uk there because they could still be in and they had we had 240 volt power available uh we had the way things were done in england were put set up that way so they would come to do their work there, but not be taxed on it. So Bjork was there for partly that reason, and also to have a nice, lovely place to record in. So she uh, was working with uh, a producer named Nellie Hooper, big guy, had done Madonna sure. and some other things, mm -hmm. and uh, working, working, working. And she decides after a while, she wants to do her vocals, not in the studio, but in the ocean. Really? And we're all going, what? In the ocean? No, you can't do that. Uh -huh. But you, she makes all her own decisions. Uh -huh. If she thinks something, that's the way it's going to be. Nobody uh -huh. ever told Bjork what to do. And that's a good thing. That's why she's so herself such an eclectic yeah. artist. So she decides we're going to record vocals in the ocean. So I got a generator and I got, I had dubbed all of her band tracks and all of those things down to at the time an ADAT, an eight, an eight track digital tape recorder, which was not a great recorder, but it would work. And uh, got long cables for microphones and headphones. Uh -huh. Got a special microphone uh, that's intended as a semi shotgun, normally used for voiceovers, because I knew it had to really had a, have a very narrow right. pickup pattern with right. the ocean all around her. So we went out and found a good place in the quiet part of the a bay part of the ocean and she went out about 40 or 50 feet into the water no as far as she could wade and not be too far submerged uh -huh. at sunset and 
would just tell us what to do. Start that song over and I'll do one. Okay, I sang it. Now we'll do another take on it. Now go to this next song. We couldn't uh-huh. talk to her. I didn't, there was no talk back. She yeah. just said what to do and we did it and recorded her vocals there. No and way. And brought it back and she loved that so much because she was really, while she sang, she was crying. Tears were coming, rolling down really? her face because it was so beautiful. The sun is setting yeah. on, on, in the west and the ocean and the, the, the waves just barely gently lapping and she was just eating it up. Oh. So the next, we come back the next day and she said, that worked so well. I now want to record. I saw there's a cave down the street. Can, can we go record in the cave? So we literally took the same setup and we all stayed up outside on, on land. And she went down under the ground into this cave. It's probably 20, 40 feet down something. Uh-huh. And, and it's full of bats flying around her. And she is singing with bats flying around her. And of course they wouldn't hit her because they see uh-huh. in the dark. They are having yeah. radar stuff. And she recorded one song. I think it was called Cover Me. And she actually yeah. sang it in the bat cave. <laughs> no way! crazy things that happened at compass point and that's that's just one of them amazing um you mentioned uh bowie gets mentioned on your website do you have a bowie story yeah he came in uh, he had recorded there before i came to compass point he had recorded there once with his band i think it was called tin machine yeah tin machine Mm -hmm. yeah and they had recorded there a bit so he knew the setup but uh, they were coming, he came in to do a show in the Bahamas, in Nassau, at the Atlantis Hotel showroom, uh, a regular concert uh, while he's on tour. But he knew of the studio there, and he had a session he had to do while he was there. He was doing a remake of his song, Changes, sorry. Uh, he was doing a new version of that for a film. Forming permanent sand So the days float through my eyes 
miles, but still the days seem the same. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds, they're immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. So the producer, his producer, Tony Visconti, came in, Bowie came in, and uh, we, he, they, they just came in, we met and everything, and said, hey, good to meet you, how are you, mm-hmm. and all that, and I'm going, I don't often go, wow, <laughs> because you, you're there to work. You can't be wowed by a star, mm-hmm. but with David Bowie, it's hard not to be. Sure. <laughs> you're yeah. looking up, and he came in impeccably dressed with a, a sport jacket and and matching pants and uh, trousers. And he just, he looked so good. He, his hair was perfect. He was gorgeous. It's just such a creature. And I was just, wow, it's David yeah. Bowie. <laughs> but then you say, okay, hey, good to meet you. We'll go to yeah. work, set the mic. How do you like the headphones? All that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, but to be working, A, with David Bowie and on the song Changes, which I was, had been in love with since the second I heard it. Uh, over, I heard it first in a hotel room in London, uh, uh, coming over the little stupid radio, built-in radios mm-hmm, they had mm-hmm. back then, on a single mono speaker. And the whole time, I'm just thinking of that. And all these years have gone by, and here you are singing it. Wow. You know? Yeah, yeah. But he, wow. uh, he was very, very nice, a, a true gentleman, lovely guy. Good. Uh, and he said, "Would you like to see the show tonight?" And I said, "Sure." So I got tickets, free tickets to the show, and that my, took my son, Lucas, who was at the time 11 or 12, something, and that was Lucas's first concert he ever oh. saw. Oh, oh, <laughs> Pretty good, man. Huh? Yes. Oh, man. Uh, okay. Let's talk about Lenny Kravitz for a second. I don't know oh, how good. heavily you involved you were on the Five album. That was, I think, his most successful album. It's the one with uh, Fly Away, which I have to admit, I, I hate that song. But I, uh, <laughs> I've never, I've always hated that song. However, on that same album is Thinking of You, which is a tribute to his mom, Roxy. Yes. And I love that song.
Um, and I think he still lives down there. I think he may still have a home down in the Bahamas. Well, yes, Lenny is part Bahamian. His mother, Roxy Roker, and for those who don't know, she was on the Jefferson. She was the black lady married to the white guy that lived upstairs from the Jefferson. Her dad was from Long Island, Bahamas. Mm. So she grew up with a, even though she was born in, in the U.S., she grew up coming back and forth to the Bahamas from a ch from a young child okay. and had a very Bahamian presence in her life. Mm -hmm. And she brought Lenny up that way. He came to the Bahamas a lot from a young child, had cousins everywhere, uh, family there. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was very much a Bahamian, mm -hmm. uh, although, he, of course, he was born in U.S. and was sure. a, an American citizen. But uh, he came down to Compass Point uh, to record the, I, the uh, album Circus, Circus, his album pro previous to Five. And uh, I wasn't working on that album at all. Well, I did some technical work in helping the people who were working on it a little bit, but I wasn't intri intricately involved in that album. But one night, Lenny was living in a rented house called La Petite Mouette on uh, 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 West Bay Street in Nassau, a rented house. And we had all told him, while you're here now, do not let your dog get out. He had his beloved dog with him there. And because that's a busy street. Sure enough, one day the dog got out right as they were finishing the album, circus album. The dog got hit by a taxi and was killed. So Lenny was devastated. He, I mean, he is so emotional and in touch with spirituality and with the, yeah. the cosmos, let's call it. Yeah. Uh, and to have lost his beloved dog, they were very tight. He was really a wreck. He yeah. brought Roxy down there to help comfort him. He brought in a priest to help him mm. uh, to, to say special mm. things over the, the dog's dead, poor dead body. I mean, it was really, really sad for him. So I'm in the studio, didn't realize this had happened, just finishing a George Thorogood album. And I get a call from Lenny saying, hey man, I've got a song, my dog's dead. What? Oh no, my dog died and I've written a song for it and I must record this song now. Mm. I had just worked an 18 hour day. I was completely blasted. Mm -hmm. But what do you do? I said, well, Lenny, come on in. Mm -hmm. So he came in, Bjork was in the studio, by the way, the other studio, and we got a loop drum loop from Nellie Hooper mm -hmm. who had a whole catalog of loops mm -hmm. and we put it on there and I brought in some some Roland synths and some different things for, and so Lenny for the first time is working with drum loops synthesizers right. instead of getting said oh I want the sound of a of a Wurlitzer electric piano I said oh I don't have one here now but I've got a sample sound of it in this Roland mm -hmm. so we use that you know and different things and we worked hours and hours all through the night into early the next morning and finished this, this homage to his poor dead dog. And at the end of it, he said, this as bad as the situation was to do it like this. This was a lot of fun. Mm. We worked well together and I didn't even mind these machines because he, before that was very organic, mm -hmm. very, right. it, it must be the real thing and, mm -hmm. and all that, which is also very good. It's a great, sure. I'm not, against that at all no. but he said this was kind of fun so when he started doing his next album uh, which became the five album mm -hmm. he said uh would you mind coming up to new york and we'll start recording i've got my own studio and i'll just pay you to engineer it 
-hmm. and we'll do some of that machine stuff again. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, sure. Okay. So I went up and we started the album in New York. He had a, a lovely carriage house in Murray Hill and uh, had converted a big former artist studio into a recording studio mm. and had a lovely room and everything. And we start working and things were going well, except if you're in New York City and you're Lenny Kravitz, you're going to get a lot of visitors. So Madonna would come by, Chris Rock would come by, Bobby Brown would come by, uh, Marilyn Manson would come by, so it's every day. Uh -huh. <laughs> and how do you say to any of these people, get out, I'm working. Right. So the session stops. We all sit there while Lenny, you know, does his thing, uh -huh. his friends, as uh -huh. he should, sure, of course. Sure. All this is stuff you need to do. Yeah. And after a while, I said, Lenny, we're never going to finish. Yeah. Yeah. He said, well, what do we do? I said, let's take it down to Compass Point where we did uh -huh. that other stuff. Uh -huh. And so we went down in a mere, I think we were five, four months in. So a mere 12, 10 or 11, 12 months later, we finally finished. Uh -huh. We worked 14, 15 months on that whole album. Wow. But uh, it had a, we were at Pro Tools for the first time uh -huh. uh, that he had ever done and uh, using all kinds of machine things synthesizers mm -hmm. and different things that he wouldn't do on his own project before mm. and as sort of a disease thing when he went to that with the timing really tight and all the yeah. things done it turned into his biggest album ever at the yeah. time yeah. greatest hits of maybe outsold it but mm -hmm. that's a little different than greatest hits sure. album. yeah well so, yeah and just so you know <laughs> it we had your album finished because we had finished recording everything, 14, 15 months of recording, uh -huh. completely done, mastered. I took it to New York to Ted Jensen at Sterling, mastered it, all done, ready to release. Then he's still down there because he's in the Bahamas, of course. Uh -huh. And he calls and says, you know what? We're not finished. And I'm going, no, we're finished. <laughs> no. And he said, we need a rock song that's not on there. So all his equipment's gone. Everything's gone. Uh -huh. 14 plus months to get where we are. So he said, just give me a couple hours. So he takes, his guitar's gone, so he takes my uh, gold top Les Paul out to the studio, plugs it in my Fender Twin Reverb, uh, uh -huh. I'm sorry, Deluxe Reverb amp, starts messing around, starts, I see him just waving, because I'm not uh -huh. even listening, he's waving out in the studio. <laughs> so I just put a mic up, just roll real quick, and he plays the chords for Fly Away. No way. <laughs> and, okay, that's that's the song. Just I didn't want to forget it. Uh -huh. And he goes and plays a, a, the drums a while. He said, gets the beat he likes. So we take four bars of it, loop it, put it down. Uh -huh. Starts overdubbing the bass. He overdubs the guitar. He overdubs the any keyboards we had. All the stuff effects. We do the whole song, and then he goes and sings it. Does a harmony. Uh -huh. Does a guitar. Does all this. Does the whole recording of Fly Away in probably three hours, maybe. Oh my gosh. If that three or four hours, something like that, from oh. lighting it off the cuff. Oh, no, no, no. I, I take that back. After we had the track, he jumped in his Jeep and drove around uh, on the beach uh -huh. Jeep, listening to the track on the stereo, right. writing right. the lyrics in the Jeep, came back and recorded the lyrics. We put it down, recorded, mixed it, put it on, and that became the song you don't like on the album. <laughs> which, Thank goodness it, it wasn't your album because that's uh, the song that became the single 
yes. pushes the biggest album he's had. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It, that is, there are so many stories like that where the last thing that people come up with at the very end is the thing that changes everything. You know? are, are, are they, it's a throwaway B-side that yes. doesn't need to even be yes. released. <laughs> oh, my funny. gosh. That is so funny. I, um, it, what it is, is I have a pet peeve against songs that rely too heavily on saying either baby or yeah, because those are cliches that get thrown <laughs> into songs, you know? And so if a chorus is yeah, 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 that just feels really lazy to me. You know what I mean? Or baby, baby, baby. These are just, it's relying too heavily on a cliche in my mind. And that's why that song it. bugs me. But it was huge. And it was played like the national anthem. It's, you couldn't yes. go anywhere without hearing yes. it. So. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. What a great story. That is so crazy. Okay, well, I was proven wrong. That's great, man. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you about one more. And here's the deal. I don't even know a ton about this band. About four or five years ago, I found this album in a Goodwill for a dollar. And it looked interesting to me. And so I bought it. And I liked it, but it was kind of odd. And I'm still to this day sitting with it. But some of my listeners have, at, have requested this band to come on the show. So I'm going to ask you about it. And that is the Tornado album by The Rainmakers. Can you yes. tell me about the tornadoes, about the tornado and the rainmakers? Well, that's I believe tornado is their second album that yes. I did. Yes, I did uh, uh, the same A and R guy that I mentioned earlier with George Thurgood, Gary Gersh at EMI asked me to do the rainmakers. Oh, uh -huh. wait, sorry, 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 sorry. He turned them down. <laughs> Gary okay. turned them down and said they weren't ready. So another Peter Lubin, another guy at at uh, the Mercury. Uh, group of labels, Polydor, uh, Polygram, it is, had asked me to do the Rainmakers. So despite the fact that Gary said they weren't ready, 
I took them in the studio and we found out they were ready. Did their first album. Again, I did some programming, had some things, had the Memphis Horns come in and play. And it did okay in the US, but not great. In England, the single went top five. It was one of the big songs of the year in England, a song called Let My People Go Go. So that was also really big in a lot of the Scandinavian countries. So normally, they might not get a big budget for a second album because the first album had what in the US didn't do quite what they hoped, uh, although it did pretty well, but medium. Mm -hmm. But in these other countries, it had just gone spectacularly. In the Scandinavian countries, Norway and Finland and places, it had gone to number one. So album and singles. So they sent them back in and we started a second album, which became Tornado. And I believe Snake Dance is on that album, mm -hmm. is it not? Yep. Yeah, I love Snake Dance. That's one yeah. of my all-time favorite productions. This is the lion's den. I hope you knew that before you came in. This is where the angels and the devils fight. And they're choosing upside tonight. But again, it didn't really break through in the U.S., but it was huge in Europe. Okay. So to this day, and the guy, guy who's really the band leader, songwriter, Bob Walkenhorst, brilliant writer, also a great graphic artist. You can oh. see his paintings online. Bob okay. Walkenhorst, he, he okay. sells his paintings all the time. He's a brilliant artist, was then, still is. Uh, and they still play. They do tours. They just got back from another tour of Scandinavia. No way. Because they're so big over there. It's like the Beatles landed when they yeah. get there to this That's day. Wild. <laughs> that is wild. Huh. Yeah, I didn't know that much about them. I was intrigued by the cover. It looked like something that I would like. And so I bought it. And uh, I, I'm still getting to know it. But over the course, over the years, I get a lot of requests for them as guests. And I thought, I well, get his first, to... get the first album. Okay. The first album is just called The Rainmakers. Uh -huh. Get that one and, and check it out too. And especially listen to his lyrics. It's okay. so clever. He's okay. almost like a Bob Dylan sometimes. Yeah. With okay. his clever lyrics. Okay. I will. Well, Terry, um, this was so much fun. And I'm so grateful that you talked to me. I, I mean, if you can't tell, I just love so much of what you've done. And this was just skimming the surface. There's so much more. So thank you for talking with me. This was a blast. 
Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. It was just lots of fun. I, I, Good. You, you, you got me talking, darn it. <laughs> Good. Well, that was, everything was gold. I loved it so much. All right, there you have it. Guys, there were so many things that I didn't even get around to. I wanted to talk about Jason and the Scorchers. There was so much stuff that we didn't even get to. We might have to do another one with Terry one of these days. I also, like I said, I feel bad that we didn't concentrate more on his own solo material. So I wanted to close it out with a ver his version of I Fought the Law, Bobby Fuller's I Fought the Law, from that West Texas Skyline album. It's so good. And there's so much more to be had and to be found and discovered in Terry's career. I love it. Anyway, all right, since we've, as we've been doing, we're doing artist, producer, artist, producer. So next week it's an artist. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to, with, but I think it's going to be a very popular singer-songwriter from the 70s. When you think that early 70s, sort of Laurel Canyon vibe, um, Joni Mitchell type, Carly Simon, Linda Ronstadt, that's about what we're talking about here, okay? So I think that's what we're going to get next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. I'm so glad we get to do this together. And um, you guys know how to find us. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, we may have a bonus episode for you this week. It is Thanksgiving in the United States. That's my favorite holiday of the year. It has changed dramatically this year with COVID kind of affecting everyone's life. I am quite depressed about it, but <clears throat> bottom line is I am thankful for all of you. Thank you for being you and for supporting us and for listening to people like Terry, supporting them. I love the community we've built here and I'm so grateful for all of you. And I hope that you have a Thanksgiving that you're happy with, whatever that may be. Okay. Love you all. We'll talk to you later. Oh, no.